0: Lord, we come to your word this morning, and we do so recognizing that this is what you have caused people to write down, that you might speak to us, and what you have to say to us is important. And so, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we ask, Lord, that you'll help us to take our eyes away from any distraction, and that our ears will be open to what you want to say to us from your word, and, Lord, that we will go from this place today knowing That you have spoken to us and you are working in our hearts for your good and for your glory and we ask it in jesus name amen there's a true story apparently that was comes from world war ii concerning an incident that occurred at the end of 1941 at the notorious kolditz prison camp in germany the nazi officers in charge of the camp began a process to try and persuade some of the Belgian and French prisoners of war to come and work for the Third Reich. On the first day, they tried as hard as they could, but despite all the promises that were made of special treatment and the like, they were met with jeers and derision from the prisoners who wanted nothing to do with their enemy who were their captors. On the second day, however, a young Frenchman by the name of Paul Durand stepped forward and said, I would like to work for the Germans." Amid the surprise, the astonishment, and the disbelief from the other POWs, the German officer repeated his question, do you really want to work for the Germans? Yes, sir, the young man replied. I'd rather work for 20 Germans than one Frenchman. Good, the officer replied. What is your occupation? I'm an undertaker, sir. I would much rather bury 20 Germans than one Frenchman. Imagine what must have been going on in the minds of those other POWs before they got the full story of what that young man was trying to do. In their minds, they would have immediately judged this man to have been a traitor, betraying his own people by willing to collaborate with a despised enemy. They would have been working out in their own minds, formulating plans about how they could get rid of this man who was a traitor to their cause, who stood against everything that they had been brought up to believe. Imagine then what might have been the outcome if they had not stopped to hear the end of the story, if they had not got the full story of what that young man was trying to do. All too often as God's people, we can be like that. We fail to look beyond our immediate circumstances and we jump to all sorts of conclusions or misunderstandings that are often way out of step with the true state of play, way out of step with the true state of affairs when it comes to God's dealings with his people. And that was certainly the case with the people of Israel in Malachi's day. Things were certainly at a low spiritual ebb in Israel And we've already seen in the earlier parts of this uh, prophecy that God has been calling his people to account. He's been calling them out because, first of all, they were doubting his love for them. They had been defiling the worship of God by offering to him less than their best. Instead of offering up animals for sacrifice without spot or blemish, they were offering up animals that were sick and lame, that which they would not even dare to offer to their governor. In addition, they had depreciated the sacred nature of the marriage covenant. They were being faithless to their partners, the wives of their youth, by marrying the daughters of foreign or ungodly nations around them. But when we come to verse 17 following of chapter 2, we discover that these people of God were actually also defaming him, defaming him by attacking his character They were questioning his sense of judgment. To their way of thinking, God was actually placing his hand of blessing upon those who were evildoers. No doubt they were working all day hard in the fields. They were doing their best to support their families. They were making the obligatory visits to the temple uh, and they were keeping uh, up the holy days and the Sabbaths. They were offering up sacrifices to the Lord. But they couldn't just see beyond the fact that those who had no time for God, those who were evildoers, those who prospered at the expense of others, seemed to be doing so well while they weren't. To their way of thinking, God seemed to be favoring these evildoers over those who were the people of God. And like the psalmist in Psalm 73, they were envious of the arrogant and the wicked because they were prospering. They seem to have no struggles in life. And as the old song goes, everything seemed to be going their way. And we were reminded of that a few weeks ago, weren't we, on that message, on on this very psalm, of how easily it is for us as the people of God to fall into this same trap. And so it seems here that God's people too were throwing their hands up in the air and saying, what's the point of it all? Why walk in humility or obedience before God was their complaint. And if you go over to verses 13 and 14, you see that similar refrain. Where's the justice in this world? Why isn't God intervening on our behalf? Evil doers thumb their nose at God and he lets them get away with it. God wasn't doing all that he had promised and so there was no advantage or profit to them as a consequence. And God promised, for example, through prophets like Haggai and Zechariah that the glory of the present temple would be greater than the glory of the former and that the desire of all nations, yes, the Lord whom they were seeking, that's referred to in verse 1, he would come to fill the temple with his glory. God's people had worked so hard to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But despite all of that, the bad guys were the only ones who were making hay while the sun shone. God hadn't followed through, it seemed, with the promises he had made to them concerning the nation. God's glory had not refilled this temple in the same way that it had in the days of Solomon when he concentrated the temple and the Shekinah glory came like a cloud and rested in the temple. The problem with God's people, however, was that they did not have the full story. They did not see the whole picture. And as a consequence, they wearied God with their words. They were tiresome to God. They were simply reflecting the same sort of attitude that the children of Israel reflected when they first went out of captivity in Egypt towards the Promised Land. They continually were whinging and complaining to God because of their circumstances. And it seems to be something that carried on throughout their history, and we see it again here, in this particular passage. And consequently, God is tired of their belly aching, their whinging, and basically says, if it's justice you want, then it's justice that you will get, but it may not be in the way that you expect. The Lord would come to his temple, but not according to expectations. And it's all too easy, isn't it, for us to fall into a similar trap How many believers, for example, have an understanding of the Christian life that is no more than come to Jesus, he'll forgive your sins, everything's going to be rosy from now on and all your problems are going to be solved. And this can so easily happen because like the priests of Malachi's day, those charged with communicating the truth of God's word can can fail to communicate the whole counsel of God. They communicate a truncated gospel which causes people to get a distorted view of the Christian life where people fail to realize that the Christian life is more than just a promise of a trouble-free and prosperous existence in this life. Consequently, when our expectations of the Christian life are not realized, like the people of Malachi's day, we can begin to question where God is in all of this and we end up with a perverted view of what God is seeking to accomplish in and through our lives as his people both individually and corporately as the church of God we begin to question his character and we begin to ask ourselves the question is it worth serving God he's not coming through to us in the way that we expect the historical context of course of the first five verses of chapter 3 is actually, we discover a prophecy that was fulfilled some 400 years later with the coming of John the Baptist and then the Lord Jesus himself. And John the Baptist was the forerunner, the one who came to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus when he first break, broke into human history in his incarnation. Malachi, whose name, by the way, means my messenger, echoes the words of Isaiah 40. When in verse 1 of chapter 3, he talks there about God sending another messenger, not Malachi, but another messenger who would prepare the way before the Lord uh, so that when he came suddenly into his temple, he had come there to prepare for him. And the person that he was preparing for, of course, was the Lord Jesus Christ himself who would come suddenly or unexpectedly to his temple. You see, when the Lord Jesus, when John the Baptist was asked who he was when he was asked for some uh, idea of his identity, he repeated the words of Isaiah, chapter 40 and verse 3, and he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And in subsequent verses of John's gospel, we are left in no doubt that the person that he was preparing for was the Lord Jesus himself, the one who was the Lord who would come suddenly to his temple And John was the messenger, if you like, who came to clear the way, to remove any obstacles uh, in the nation of Israel so that the Lord, who was also described as the messenger of the covenant, uh, could accomplish his purposes, not only for the nation of Israel, but for the rest of the world as well. John's ministry was a ministry of spring cleaning, if you like, spiritual spring cleaning in the preparation of, ...of the Lord Jesus coming, who was one who was described as both Lord and the messenger of the covenant. And we know this to be true because even Jesus himself says of John, quoting this very passage in Malachi... ...he says, this is he of whom it is written, behold I send my messenger before your face... ...who will prepare your way for you. In fact, verse 14 of the same chapter and also over in Matthew 17... Jesus goes on to confirm that if they had the mind to accept that John the Baptist was also the fulfillment of the prophecy over in chapter 4 and verse 5 of Malachi, where God says he would send the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And even before John was born, the angel of the Lord who appeared to Zechariah, his father said that he would have a son born to him and his wife Elizabeth who would go before the Lord in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So we're left in no doubt that it is the Lord Jesus himself was the focus of John's ministry when Malachi speaks here of God's messenger coming to prepare the way for him, the Lord whom they were seeking. And for a people who were wearying the Lord with their complaining, tiring him with their accusations that God favored evildoers over them and that he was not a God of justice, they would discover that their accusations were without substance. For yes, the Lord would come to his temple suddenly and unexpectedly after God sent his messenger ahead of him. God's glory would indeed be revealed in the temple. But it would not be a glory that came in the Shekinah glory cloud, but it would be a glory that came in the person of the Lord Jesus himself. And John captures that in his gospel, doesn't he, when he says the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son of God, full of grace and truth. The problem for these people, however, was that they were expecting God to work according to their own timetable and according to their own expectations. They had lost sight of the word of God, which declared that my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. They didn't have the full picture, the full story, and that the answer to their dilemma would be found in the person of the Lord Jesus, who is the ultimate expression of God's justice. He is not only referred to here as the Lord, but also the messenger of the covenant. And that latter title referred to here it reminds us that Jesus broke into human history first of all to be a redeeming saviour. The reference to Jesus as a messenger of the covenant points us to passages like Hebrews 8.6 or 9.15, for example, which speak of Jesus being the mediator of the new covenant in contrast to the old sacrificial system, which was a foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice to come. This new covenant was that which the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied in Jeremiah 31, where God tells his people through the prophet that the days were coming, that he would make a new covenant with them, a covenant unlike that that he had made with their forefathers. He was going to put their law within them. He was going to write his law upon their hearts. This was a covenant that was focused on their redemption. He would forgive their iniquity. He would remember their sins no more. Consequently, the writer to the Hebrews can speak about this covenant uh, as being unlike the old covenant. It's a new and a better covenant because under the old covenant, the sacrifice for sins needed to be offered up continually. But under the new covenant, Jesus was offered up once to bear the sins of many. It was a single sacrifice for sins, a sacrifice that Hebrews chapter 10 reminds us was the fulfillment of the promise made in Jeremiah 31. And this, of course, was exactly what Jesus was pointing to, wasn't he? When in that upper room on the night that he was betrayed, before his arrest and crucifixion, he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper. And there, as he passed out the cup, he said, this cup is the covenant, the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You know, the greatest proof of Jesus' work of salvation is once and for all sacrifice for the sins of the world was demonstrated on that cross. When after a silence of 400 years, Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection was vindicated as the old sacrificial system was tossed aside. The veil of the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom. There was the thundering of an earthquake and many of the Old Testament saints were raised coming out of their tombs and appearing to many following Jesus' resurrection. Is it any wonder then that John the Baptist was able to declare with such great authority at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he saw him coming towards him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yes, the Lord Jesus is a redeeming saviour, the messenger of the covenant who came into the world to die for the sins of the world. He offers forgiveness of sin and life in abundance for all who would put their faith and their trust in him for their salvation. And that is a message that we must constantly proclaim. For in Jesus, God's justice, which demands that sin must be atoned for, punishment must be enacted, is perfectly demonstrated while at the same time he is able to offer grace and mercy to us. Yes, Jesus is the only hope for the world as our substitute, but let's make sure that we get the full story. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus is much more than just a person whose ministry involved a promise of a prosperous and a trouble-free life. The picture that is presented here in the book of Malachi concerning him encompasses so much more. Yes, he is a redeeming saviour, but he is also described here as a refining fire. In an ominous warning, verse 2 tells us that when the Lord, the messenger of the covenant, does appear, the question that will be posed is this, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? His coming, in fact, won't be the delight that you're looking for, Malachi says. And they should have realized this already because of the issues that Malachi has been confronting them with earlier in his prophecy. But just to be certain that they get the message, uh, he suggests that the Lord's coming may not be the pleasant experience that they were anticipating. He will come as a refiner's fire or as a launderer's soap. Yes, Jesus' ministry also involved his coming to purify his people to purify the Levites first of all the priestly class firstly like gold or silver to purify their worship which had become so corrupted through the sinfulness of the human heart and the multitude of human regulations that had sapped the life and the vitality from the relationship that God's people were meant to enjoy with him And consequently, Jesus both challenged and confronted the religious elite during his earthly ministry for their hypocrisy and their legalism. And Jesus' assessment of their spiritual life and fervor was so penetrating, so damning, that it was not long before these scribes, these Pharisees, were up in arms because of his assessment of their spiritual condition. He made such innocuous statements about them that they were hypocrites because they did not practice what they preached. He accused them of placing such heavy burden on the people with their demands, their legalistic demands, demands that they themselves were not willing to lift one finger to engage in. Not only did they love the status and the honour that came with their positions... They made sure they paraded themselves around so that they had people falling, fawning over them just like people in our generation fawn over celebrities today. Jesus called them blind guides leading the blind, whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside but full of dead men's bones and full of all sorts of uncleanness. They had totally corrupted the worship of God and, in doing so, had taken the nation along with them. And it could never be said that they were worshipping in spirit and in truth. Is it any wonder then that the scribes, the Pharisees, became Jesus' mortal enemies? And they sought every opportunity to entrap him and eventually get rid of him, so they thought. And the two occasions on which Jesus cleansed the temple, one at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end by making a whip out of cords and driving out the money changers and those who sold animals for sacrifice, were in fact dramatic and symbolic acts that pointed to the purifying work that he had come to do. No wonder John the Baptist said of him in Matthew chapter 3, after me is coming one who is more powerful than me whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You know the encouraging thing about the purifying ministry of the Lord Jesus, particularly amongst the religious elite, is that if you go over to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter six and verse seven, where it talks about the word of God continuing to spread under the ministry of the apostles, there's one little sentence at the end and it says, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Jesus' purifying work made possible by his once and for all sacrifice on the cross was accomplishing what had been prophesied 400 years before by the prophet Malachi. What does this have to say to us in 2021? Simply this. God is always concerned about the purity of his people and their worship as it applies to us as individuals and also on a corporate level. Worship is nothing less than giving to God the glory that is due to his name. And God is always concerned about the purity of his people and their worship. And individually and corporately we are told in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 that we are the temple of the living God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that temple is sacred to God. And if anyone destroys that temple, God will destroy him. Peter reminds us, doesn't he, in his epistle that like God's people of the Old Testament, we too are a chosen nation and what a royal priesthood that we might declare the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2.19 following that we are God's household built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Jesus as the chief cornerstone and we are growing together into a holy temple in the Lord. Jesus, I suggest, is no less concerned with the purity in the worship of his church, the household of God or the temple of God as he was in Malachi's day. And so too he will do his purifying work in our lives so that we might be a true reflection of who he is in life and worship. So that the witness of our lives will point people to the God we love and serve rather than that like the Pharisees and the scribes who by their teaching were actually shutting people out of the kingdom of God by their actions rather than drawing them in to a relationship with a living God. And that purifying or refining process that God uses is not always something that is very comfortable The refining process used to refine gold and silver in Malachi or Jesus' day as you would expect was not the sophisticated process that we use in our modern technological world. But the imagery that it conveys is very powerful. As the precious metal was heated up in a bowl it became a molten mass which allowed the dross, all the impurities in the metal to float to the surface and there they would be scooped off by the refiner. And that process was repeated time after time until finally all the impurities were gone. How did the refiner know the process was complete? He would look down into the mirror-like surface of that molten liquid. And if he could see his own reflection without any distortion caused by any impurities, he knew that the process was complete. Jesus wants our lives individually and corporately to perfectly reflect his character. And so he will apply that refining process to our lives individually and yes, corporately as a church body until the day we pass from this life into our eternal reward. But associated with that refining process is also another process, that of the laundress soap. When clothes were washed in the ancient world, they were usually trampled or beaten on rocks beside the river and a bleaching soap was applied. And I'm sure most of us have seen documentaries on TV where this process is still used in many of the undeveloped parts of our world. And Both processes spoken about here could be quite harsh, but nonetheless very necessary to achieve the desired effect. And so it is with God's refining and purifying process in our lives, individually and corporately. The problem with the people of Malachi's day, however, if you look at verse 5, was that they were virtually indistinguishable from the ungodly nations around them. The false worship, the perjury, the moral laxity, the exploitation of the vulnerable was as much a part of their lives, as much a part of their culture as the nations around them. They were living in total contradiction to the faith they professed to put it in new testament terms instead of the church getting out into the world the world had gotten into the church and whenever this happens we should not be surprised that the head of the church begins to do a refining work amongst his people he will do whatever it takes to get our attention it may be through persecution, it may be through a famine of the hearing of the Word of God, a spiritual drought that occurred in this occasion for the next 400 years, when God was virtually silent. It may be by some other means, God simply may allow us to reap the consequences of our choosing to ignore His word. But whenever way, or whichever way God chooses to engage, that process in our lives it won't necessarily be a very comfortable process but it will be for the specific purpose that we might become all that God desires for us as individuals or as a local body of believers that the sacrifice of our praise and worship might be found acceptable to him as Hebrews 12 10 and 11 reminds us God disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. And that discipline may seem painful rather than pleasant at first, but it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to all of those who have been trained by it. Yes, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. In closing this morning, I want you to notice that Malachi also introduces A note of judgment in verse five, when he said that God would be a swift witness against those who engage in these various sins, he would come near to them or he would draw near to them in judgment. This is a reminder to us of a third aspect of Jesus' ministry, which Malachi will go on to elaborate further on in chapter four, when he addresses the topic of the day of the Lord. Suffice to say for our purposes this morning, that not only is Jesus a redeeming saviour and a refining fire, we are also introduced to him here as a returning judge. And the reason for that is simply this. There will be those who reject Jesus' redeeming and refining ministry. They are those who, in the words of verse 5, do not fear the Lord. They reject his claim of lordship over their lives. And consequently, God's ultimate act of justice To use the words of Acts 17 is that he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed and of whom he has given assurance of vindication by raising him from the dead. And that person is none other than Jesus himself, the messenger of the covenant. On this day, the scripture reminds us that the scales of justice and inequality will be perfectly balanced. And those who have no time for God, those evildoers whom God accused of, was accused of favoring at their expense, will discover just how devastating God's judgment is. They will not be getting away with their evil deeds or their rejection of God as his people were claiming. And notwithstanding that, Malachi goes on to remind his hearers in verse 6, a verse which acts as a bridge or a transition between what he is currently addressing and the next issue that he will address, which is namely the question of tithes or offerings. And he goes on to remind those who are questioning God's sense of judgment, that it is only because of the unchanging nature of God's character that he had not come to them already and consumed them in their disobedience. It was all very well for them to point to those evildoers out there and how they were getting away with things. But God is saying, you need to have a hard look at yourselves as well. it's only because of God's patience and love with you that you have not been consumed by the fire of his judgment. See, when God made his first covenant with Moses, he declared of himself, didn't he, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means will clear the guilty. Yes, as the scripture reminds us, it's because of the Lord's great love towards us that we are not consumed. Peter reminds us in his second epistle, doesn't he, when he declares to those who are doubting the promise of Christ coming again, and he says that God is not slow concerning his promise, he will not be slow to fulfill his promise, but he is patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But that day will surely come, however, he declares, a day when God's spirit will no longer strive with unbelievers, And the day of opportunity will be gone forever. And we need to be prepared and ready lest we face the awful prospect of reaping God's judgment in the person of his son, Jesus. Getting the full story means seeing Jesus, yes, as a redeeming saviour, yes, as a refining fire, but also as a returning judge you know I saw this very sobering statement on a social media post recently which said this you know what's scarier than COVID-19 depart from me I never knew you Jesus now is the time of God's favour the scripture says now is the day of salvation how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word always has something to say to us. We pray, Father, that as we reflect on the words of Scripture this morning, we pray, Lord, that you will speak to our hearts, that we won't just hear the voice of a man who's been standing at the front, but the Holy Spirit will take the words of Scripture and apply them deep to our hearts. And if there is a work of redemption, a work of refining that needs to take place in our lives, we pray, Lord, that we will be open and sensitive to the work of your spirit. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.